If you like the stories you hear on the Story Collider, we think you'll like the Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series that features people telling stories about climate change and how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting real people. You can find it online at beyondcoal.org stories or wherever you download podcasts. A science story, huh? NYU scientists, they felt right. I was so happy. And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we present true personal stories about science. No lectures, no PowerPoints, just stories. I am your host, Aaron Barker. This week, we're presenting two stories about scientists coming of age. Our first story is from Jean and Sola Beher. It was recorded in August 2017 at Comedy Sports in Los Angeles, California. The theme that night was epiphanies. Hi, guys. Um, So, depending on how you count... I either came out to my mother super early or like really late. Um, The first time that I told her I liked women, I was 10 years old and we were in the parking lot of a McDonald's and I did it because I had been in love with this girl in my class named Margot since the summer before. Uh, it was like it was like the kind of love you can only feel when you're 10, before you've gotten any baggage and all your gooey feelings are just like on the table. <laughs> and she just looked, she was so cool. She wore Converse high tops. And standing here saying this to all of you makes me really nervous because, spoiler alert, I never told Margot how I felt. Uh, I didn't then, I haven't since, but I changed her name and you guys look like you could keep a secret, so let's keep going. And I didn't tell her because I went to an all-girls school and the meanest insult that kids from other schools could level at us was calling us a lesbian. So I didn't know very much about being a woman who loved a woman, but I knew it couldn't possibly be a good thing. Uh, My feelings about Margot had become my deepest shame, the kind of confession that sits improbably close to the tip of your tongue, and I was so scared that I thought if I didn't tell my mother, I might actually explode. Uh, My mother was the smartest person I'd ever met, and I thought if anyone would know what to do, it would be her. So it's a Tuesday night, we're sitting in my mother's white minivan, and we're bathed in the glow of the Mickey D's arches. And and my mother says, are you ready to go inside? And I say, I'm a lesbian. (laughs) Yeah. And my mother says, where did you hear that word? And I told her where I heard it. I heard it from the mean kids from other schools who lobbed that word like a grenade at my classmates. And my mother told me I wasn't a lesbian. And I took a deep breath, and for the first time out loud, I said, but I love Margot. And without missing a beat, my mother responds with a litmus test that I will never forget. She says, would you rather have a picture of Keanu Reeves on your wall or Julia Roberts? And this is, this is 1999, and The Matrix has just come out. 
and Julia Roberts is pretty passe. So obviously I say Keanu Reeves and the tension in the car breaks immediately. My mom's like, you have nothing to worry about. You're not gay. See? <laughs> this sort of thing just happens to young girls. You're fine. And the, the knot in my stomach evaporates and I'm like, I'm fine. I'm 10 years old and I'm straight and I have nothing to worry about. And I carried around the Keanu Reeves test as empirical proof of my heterosexuality for the next 15 years. And this is how I know that my mother would have been a great scientist. Uh, she's a teacher, but I'm pretty sure that's just because when she went to college in 1963, female scientists were pretty few and far between. Um, I think she sometimes still feels like she missed her calling to be a researcher or a doctor, she even talks about it in kind of oblique ways, like, example, she sends me a lot of articles about stem cell research or space travel from the New York Times, and they always have, like, so exciting, or it would be so cool to do this. And uh, they used to be newspaper clippings, like she would mail them to me, but recently she found the forward this article button on NewYorkTimes.com, <laughs> and now she's unstoppable. <laughs> uh, when I was in college studying human biology, she would call me like once a week just to see what was happening in the classes. Uh, like she wasn't checking on me, she was checking on the curriculum, you know? Yeah. I mean, for crying out loud, when I was six years old, for my very first science fair, my mother orchestrated this giant show-stopping project on the circulatory system. It was huge, like no six-year-olds could have done this. And the best part of it was, <laughs> the best part of it was she bought this lamb heart and we dissected it together in our kitchen. <sighs> and I remember her pointing with the tip of this blood-stained knife and showing me like the aorta and the pulmonary artery. And, and I was staring at this glistening heart just sort of splayed open on our kitchen counter. And it was so strong and so impossibly complex with these intricate highways sneak, snaking in and out of the ventricles. And I remember thinking, I'd never seen something so beautiful. Um, I think that might have been the moment that I knew that I loved science. And from the look on my mother's face as she like sliced open one of the ventricles to expose the valve, I could tell she loved it too. So yeah, I became a scientist. Uh, I was a research technician at a microbiology lab in Utah where I was living with this guy I was dating at the time. Long story. And it was a great job. Um, I was basically studying DNA replication in cancer. So I spent a lot of time either in the cell culture room or in the microscope room, which was my favorite because... I was taking pictures of fluorescently tagged DNA fragments, which if you've never seen them, they're so beautiful. They just look like fireworks across the slide. It was an amazing job. My mother was so jealous. It was great. Um, <laughs> however, I was not great at the job. Uh, my first week there, I broke a mercury thermometer in a hot water bath, which is bad because mercury is super toxic and more toxic if you heat it and evaporate it into the environment. And it's worse because I waited a whole day before I told anybody about it. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> when I finally did, they evacuated the building. It was humiliating. <laughs> but 
I'm not sorry that I did it because that was the day that I met Beth. Um, this postdoc in the lab next to ours, just a couple of benches down, she was smart and deadpan with these quick little hands that could do anything, which is super important if you're in a lab. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> if you're in a lab. And that day, <laughs> that day, uh, we were all standing outside waiting for the poison control people to let us back into the building after the thermometer thing. And she came up to me and she was like, I know you broke the mercury thermometer. And I was convinced I was about to lose my job when she leans in and she goes, welcome to the club. I fell pretty hard, pretty fast after that. Uh, it turned out that talking to Beth was a jolt of adrenaline. I felt like a superhero when I made her laugh. We rode the bus together and we talked a lot about what it felt like to be a transplant in Utah. Uh, she was from Oregon, I think, and I was from Los Angeles. I found myself looking forward more and more to days when I wouldn't be holed up in the microscope room doing my favorite experiment, when I would be out on the floor running gels or something and talking to her. And she made me nervous. She made me so nervous, the way that Margot made me nervous when I was 10 years old. Um, like once, I was holding a box of Eppendorf tubes while I was talking to her, and my hands were so shaky that I just dropped them all over the floor. Like, like 200 precious samples just scattered across the lab. <laughs> and I got down on my knees, and, and Beth laughed, and, like, <laughs> and she got down to help me, and I was like, oh my god, your laugh's so pretty. And then I was like, oh no, this can't be good. Um, but it wasn't like I was going to do anything about it, you know? It was a crush. It was a crush. It was a full-blown crush that might be signaling the beginning of the end with my boyfriend, but I wasn't going to do anything about it. I was a straight girl with a boyfriend and a fun work friend who had a very pretty laugh. <laughs> and I was fine with everything, just the way it was. Um, until this one night. Uh, Beth invited me to a party at her place, this cute little craftsman-style house in the hills behind Salt Lake City. And I don't know what I was expecting exactly, but I did my makeup, which I never do, and I insisted that I go alone. And when I got there, I spent like five minutes in the car just psyching myself up to be brave enough to go ring the doorbell. And I finally do and Beth opens the door, and my heart like stops for a second. And she's like, Jean, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. I saved you cake. She saved me cake. <laughs> this is Travis. And she steps aside, and she wraps her arms around this very tall, very geeky, very nice-looking guy. And he puts his hand out, and he goes, hey, nice to meet you. I'm the old ball and chain. And that's when I realized She's wearing a ring. She has, she's always been wearing a ring. <laughs> like, we wear latex gloves in the lab, so maybe you couldn't like see it exactly, but there's a bump. She was wearing a ring. I just didn't want to see it. And if I was going to be a good scientist, I had to stop seeing only what I wanted to see. So I went home that night uh, a little bit heartbroken, pretty devastated. But more than that, I went home finally ready to start accepting myself for the person that I was. So the second time I came out to my mother, 
I was almost 25. I was living in Los Angeles, again, the place where I grew up. Uh, we were in a parking lot, again, this time a Baja Fresh. <laughs> it's true. Um, I was at the very beginning of the best relationship of my life with a woman named Alicia, and she said, are you ready to go inside? And I said, I like women. And she put her hand over her heart, and she said, that makes me really scared for you. My mother's heart is strong and scarred. It is an intricate network of arterial highways and heartbreak. She is still the smartest woman, the smartest person I've ever met. But she has been told over and over again that she can't. And I am so grateful that I live in a city and in a moment in history where I can. I really can. I can be a scientist. I can be in love with a woman. And none of that makes me afraid. Not anymore. Thank you. That was Jean and Sola Beher. Jean is a cartoon writer with past lives as a research technician at Stanford University and the Huntsman Cancer Institute. She has loved biology since the first time she got stitches, and in her research and her writing, she strives to understand the human condition through the human body. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. Once again, if you like the stories you hear on Story Collider, we think you'll like Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series featuring people telling stories about climate change and how this shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is really affecting real people, all the things environmental scientists care about. The series has 10 stories from families throughout the South, from a South Carolina mayor moving his city to 100% clean energy, to generations of a West Virginia farming family trying to protect their land from fossil fuels, to the Lumbee tribe's battle to protect their river, and climate refugees in Florida and North Carolina, and, and so much more. So there are also five full podcast episodes with more stories about the special places in the South. So you can listen to The Land I Trust at beyondcoal.org slash stories or on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Scott Barry Kaufman. It was recorded in October 2017 at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York, at a show we produced in partnership with Springer Nature and Scientific American. The theme that night was creativity. So about a couple weeks ago, I was in a really, really good mood. I was in Philadelphia, I was walking through the park and Birds were chirping and the sun was out and I was really happy. And I looked over and I saw an older man on the park bench holding his nose, his nose was bleeding. And I looked at him and suddenly a feeling of dread came over me and I wasn't quite sure why. I sat at a park bench uh, near him and started thinking to myself, what, why am I feeling this way? Like, I'm feeling scared, I'm feeling like I'm 
a little kid again. This is terrible. I was just in such a good mood. And then it all comes back. I remember the first couple years of my life, I was uh, practically deaf. I had a lot of fluid in my ears. And uh, they diagnosed me with a learning disability, central auditory processing disorder. And I was placed in special ed. I um, had to repeat third grade as a result of this. And I remember being bullied a lot in third grade over this and kept in special ed. I was kept in special ed until ninth grade, uh, kind of unquestioningly. I felt as though I was capable of more challenges, but I felt like who was I to question any, any of the authorities on this? So I was kept in special until ninth grade. I remember this one day in ninth grade when uh, they had us go to a special room uh, where you take untimed, we take, you know, tests that are untimed during the regular uh, period because um, you're in special ed. And there was this teacher who took me aside after class and said, you know, why are you here? You, I said, well, first of all, I'm sorry for not taking this test. It's untimed. I have the rest of my life to take it. So I've kind of been daydreaming. And, and she's like, you know, I, I think I see you. You know, why are you here? And I started to think to myself, you know, why am I here? And it quickly turned into, yeah, why, why am I here? Why am I here? And I, I decided to just take myself out of special education. And I had a big meeting with everyone and the school psychologist and everyone. And they let me out on a trial basis. I was like, um, they were like, you know, if you fail, you're going to have to come back in. I was like, thanks for that vote of confidence, guys. <laughs> That's really supportive. I feel supported. Um, so when I got out, I signed up for almost every class I could imagine. Um, I signed up for the school orchestra. My grandfather was a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he taught me how to play cello. And my senior year, I had a whole bunch of friends in gifted education. And I you know, decided that I wanted to join gifted education. And so I went up to the gifted education teacher, uh, and I said, you know what, could I, could I join gifted education? And you know, the teacher said, um, uh, no, you know, you certainly look gifted. Uh, I was like, okay, uh, <laughs> good, I guess that's good, good start. Um, the only thing is you have to um, get a, a formal diagnosis. And I was like, no, you know, you just have to go to the school psychologist. I've been trying to keep my label, you know, totally secret up to that moment. This is like senior year of high school. And I was like, please don't look at my past. So I went to the school psychologist and the school psychologist, you know, looked at me as like, oh, yes, she's right. You do look gifted. Um, why don't you uh, just sit here? I just need to check your IQ score uh, when you're 11 years old. And I'm sure it's high. And like what? No. And so he 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 comes back after the file, and his entire demeanor has changed. And he's like, "Have a seat." And he pulls out um, a napkin and draws a bell curve on the napkin. And he starts at the far right, and he's like, "Look, these this is these are uh, you know basically all your friends are. This is all your friends that in gift education." He moved to the left, and he moved you know to this the middle line, which is average IQ, and. He kept moving. I was like, when is this guy going to stop? How, how dumb am I? <laughs> I didn't know I was that dumb. Jeez. And he, he, moved, he moved to the left. He said, this is you. I'm sorry. You're, you, know, you don't qualify. Um, you know, I know. Uh, and I'm like, but I'm getting straight A's in all honors classes. I went from a CD student, by the way, to straight A's after I took myself out of special ed. And I think to myself, at what point does achievement trump potential? Uh, I didn't say that out loud, but um, I was thinking that to myself. I was really angry, and he's like, sorry, you know, this is the rules. 
And you know, I, I checked a, at a book in the library on intelligence, and it said uh, what IQs you're capable of achieving in life. And it said my IQ. I found what you just told me, and it said not likely to graduate high school. And I was like, screw that. Um, and so I applied to Carnegie Mellon University, uh, which is a really good psychology program. And I put in my personal statement how I want to redefine intelligence. I don't think the standard metrics are, are good indicators of intelligence. And they rejected me. They said, sorry, your SAT scores aren't high enough to redefine intelligence. <laughs> I was like, that is the most ironic bullshit I've ever heard. <laughs> so I was, I was like, do you hear yourself? Anyway, I was like... So I got rejected because I wanted to redefine intelligence but my SAT scores weren't high enough. And so I looked at the different departments to see which departments didn't uh, look at uh, SAT scores. And of course I found the opera department. So I walked in the following week to the opera department and I was like, hi, I've always wanted to be an opera singer. <laughs> and uh, I'll sing, uh, I sang Stars from Les Miserables, one of my favorite songs. And they apparently thought I was good. They accepted me in a partial scholarship to Carnegie Mellon for my vocal abilities. Um, <laughs> don't make me sing. And um, they, um, uh, you know, apparently the departments don't talk to each other at Carnegie Mellon because they just rejected me. I was so happy they didn't talk to each other. So I felt like a fraud, of course, imposter the whole first year. I took dance classes. I did all these things I was terrible at. I, I was like, why am I here on a partial scholarship for this? But anyway, by the end of my freshman year, I went to the psychology department. I was so nervous. The, the, um, uh, the secretary was there kind of eating a bologna sandwich. It was lunchtime. And I was so nervous. I was like, look, I just took a course in psychology here, and I loved it. Do you think I could be a minor in psychology? And she said, sure, just sign this piece of paper. I remember skipping home in my tights uh, later that day. <laughs> because I had come from dance class earlier. Wow, all that fighting and it all came down to just sign the paper? Really? So I went back the following semester and said, look, I, I took another course, I loved it even more. Do you think I could be a major in psychology? She said, yeah, just sign these two pieces of paper. <laughs> Sheesh, no one's ever been this excited to be a minor in psychology at Carnegie Mellon. So I graduated Phi Beta Kappa in psychology as a major. They, she never, thankful, thankful, thank you, thank you. Thankfully, they never looked at my IQ score at age 11, <sighs> or else that would have, I wouldn't have been possible to predict that. Um, and so I graduated, and then I was, um, thank, thankfully, I was accepted to Yale uh, to do a PhD, and in 2009, I did uh, come up with a dissertation and redefined intelligence in my dissertation. <laughs> That's the most applause consecutively ever that I've ever received. Thank you. So I'm back on the park bench. You know, kind of the whole story just goes through me again. And then it hits me. This guy with a bloody nose next to me is the school psychologist that I haven't seen in 20 years. That's where I know him from. That's why I'm feeling dread. So I think to myself, what, what do I do? This is crazy. Do I punch him and give him a, a bigger bloody nose? Do I show compassion? I don't know what to do. So I just go really nervous. I'm really nervous. I stand up. I go to him. I'm like, hey, um, I'm a, and I, I remembered his name. I said, are you so-and-so? He said, yes, yes. I said, 
I was a student of yours uh, a long time ago. He's like, oh, that's, that's wonderful. I was like, do you think maybe I could just sit down and talk to you for a second? I sit down. And he's like, sorry, you know, my nose bleeds periodically. Um, so anyway, um, I want to tell you, this, there's this kid that um, I'm helping uh, who is just a really stupid kid. And he just has, uh, he got a, a 85 on his IQ test. And, and I'm like, really? This guy hasn't changed at all? In 20 years, we pick up exactly where we left off? I didn't say that. I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe he's telling me this story. He's like, yeah, this kid, I'm helping this kid. He's young. His parents have abandoned him. But then I just calm down a second, and I just look at him for who he is. And I see, I, see, I realize, wow, he's human. Like, I, like, yeah, he's telling this story, but he also, he's bleeding. He has a bloody nose. He's in a vulnerable position right now, and he also genuinely cares about helping this kid, despite the sort of model that he's working under. And then I was like, wow, this person, I, I've been demonizing this person for 20 years. He's been, this, in all my stories, he's been the evil school psychologist. And then I realized it's, probably, it's just a matter of information. Like, he's just, you know, he's, he's kind of looking through the lens of trying to help this kid that, of, of what he knows. And so I said, I said, look, just tell me one good thing about this child. I work in the field of twice exceptional children. Uh, this is the field that I've gone into. You actually inspired me to go into that field. <laughs> I didn't really tell him too much of the story. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, and you know, kids that simultaneously have area of giftedness but also learning disability. Uh, could it be that 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 this is what you're dealing with here? And he said, and he thought about. It. He's like, wow, no one's ever asked me that question before. Um, you know what? He's a DJ. He's good at. He's actually really loves DJing. He's good at that. I was like, you just told me for like 10 minutes all the things that's bad about this kid. Like, maybe you could kind of build off that. And then we had another 15 minutes of discussion, pleasant conversation, and we said our goodbyes. And as I'm walking away, I, I feel all that dread just completely leave my body. And this entire narrative, this story, what I build him up to be, all these feelings that I've, resentment that I've held towards him just disappeared. And I realized that that's my purpose in life, just share the information. Thank you. That was Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott is a professor of positive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of seven books, including Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Scientific American, Psychology Today, and Harbor Business Review. And he writes a blog at Scientific American called Beautiful Minds. Kaufman is also host of The Psychology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's stories or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb the rankings and that helps new listeners find the podcast. And we really want to share these amazing stories with as many people as possible. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Audrey Kearns, Cassie Soliday, me, Aaron Barker, and Paula Croxon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. 
Special thanks to Comedy Sports and the Bell House for hosting these shows and to all of you for being such great listeners this year. I hope you all have happy holidays. Thanks for listening. Before we go, we just want to remind you one more time that if you like the stories you hear on Story Collider, we think you'll like Sierra Club's new storytelling podcast, The Land I Trust. It's a first-person audio series that features people telling stories about climate change and how the shift from fossil fuels to clean energy is affecting real people. You can find it online at beyondcoal.org stories or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks.